This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Hey everyone, this is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast. Uh, I wanted to record this quick message letting people know that I'm going to be away for roughly a month to two months tops doing promotion for my brand new book, Everything Mind, which is coming out October 1st and published by Sounds True. And thank you, Sounds True, for that. Uh, but in my absence, I want to run some older interviews that I did in 2014. The, these are a series of what I was calling uh, Indie Spiritualist Skype sessions that I was doing on my website, theindiespiritualist.com. These are a series of video interviews that I had done, uh, which I have transferred into audio format. So apologies that the quality is not exactly up to par. However... It's definitely listenable, and the people I have as guests, I think, are worthy of your time. I hope, at least after you listen to them, that you feel they are. So anyways, I just want to say a quick hello, and again, my apologies for my absence over the next month to two months, um, but in that time, I sincerely hope you enjoy these interviews. Thank you very much. All right, well, hi, everyone. Thank you all for joining us. My name is Chris Grasso, and I'm uh, author of Indie Spiritualist. And I'm, I'm Adam, and I'm a co-author of Occupy Spirituality. Um, this is actually the first time Adam and I have done a dialogue together, so I'm really excited to be here with us. Adam came in from New York City today to be here with us. I came in from about three streets over. <laughs> so, uh, thanks, Adam, for making the drive. Thank you. Um, so originally, you know, this is the third annual spirituality fair that the sanctuary's done, and um, and I've been honored to be a part of it uh, each year. And I'd asked Adam if he wanted to come and do his own workshop, and he was into it. And he's like, "Why don't we just do a dialogue?" And I'm like, "All right, yeah, that's cool. Um, what do you want dialogue about?" And we've been kind of asking each other that question right up until about two minutes ago. <laughs> so uh, we are just going to tell you a little bit about ourselves and our experience with our spiritual journeys. And then we're going to kind of organically let the conversation take, uh, take us where it will. We will talk for about 45 minutes roughly. And then we will do like a 15 minute Q and a, um, at the end, uh, for any questions, comments, concerns, whatever you guys want to share uh, is cool with us. So I would love to ask Adam 
if you could, if you don't mind starting out, um, I've heard your story and I absolutely love it. Um, Adam's from Poland and uh, he does a lot of tremendous work. He, I know he only mentioned he co-authored Occupy Spirituality, but he co-authored it with Matthew Fox, who is an amazing theologian. He is an old school spiritual rebel, um, a very amazing, amazing man. And Adam's done great work with Andrew Harvey and just a lot of really important spiritual teachers. So I'd love if you could share a little about your stuff. So it was a wonderful experience to, to, to work on the book with Matthew. He's been a mentor of mine for, I think, over a decade. And he's one of those real spiritual rebels. Uh, he was a Catholic priest and at some point was kicked out of the Catholic Church because he was too radical. Essentially, he had this idea that, uh, you know, he saw that young people are not going to church anymore. So he said, well, but they're going to raves. Why don't we... Why don't we do a rave mass? You know, why don't we bring raves into into our churches? And he started doing that. And obviously, Cardinal, Cardinal Ratzinger got pretty pissed about that. Um, and eventually, they silenced him for a year and then kicked him out. Um, and now he's an Episcopal priest. He said that he received a religious asylum from the Episcopal Church. And and actually this weekend today, they're doing a rave mass at the Grace Cathedral in in San Francisco, which is a big Episcopal cathedral. Um, you know, a little bit just briefly about kind of what, what brings me here and on this journey. I am originally from Poland. I grew up during the communist regime. I was born in 1975, so... I was really growing up during the Solidarity Movement, um, where, you know, it wasn't a very good experience to be in Poland at that time. Um, the system was extremely oppressive, and we were essentially trying to do something about it, uh, you know, young people as well as our parents. Um, and so early on in my life, I knew that, you know, just looking around me that I had two choices. One was uh, to become an activist or another one to, to, to essentially just drink myself to death. Because those are the only two choices, you know, that, that people really had. Uh, and early on in my life, um, and that really brought me into spirituality, I was kind of really influenced by two activist priests who both of them were, were killed by the regime. One of them was my parish priest. The other one was um, Father Jerzy Popiuszko. The Vatican is trying to make him into a saint now, which is kind of surprising, but hey. Um, uh, he, he was often called um, Gandhi of Poland because he stood for nonviolence and etc. And so early on in my life, I realized that, you know, uh, to say yes to God means to say no to everything that violates God's love and justice in the world. And I learned that from those guys. And, and I also learned that if you do that, there's a price that you have to pay. And both of those guys were killed, you know, and one of them was really tortured and a lot of it was then televised. And, you know, that kind of led me to many different places, including to India, to a monastery in the Himalayas, and then working with homeless kids. And, and today... I work with homeless kids, but, you know, that's kind of a long story, uh, but, but you know, maybe we can come back to it at some point, or you can just read the book. I didn't bring any copies, really, but, <laughs> but Chris, what, what about you? I mean, what brings you here, and, and, and what, 
what motivated you to, 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 to write uh, that wonderful book of yours? Thank you, sir. Uh, well, that's a really tough story to follow because, uh, I, I don't know, I'm not from Poland. I didn't visit India. I was born in Maine, and um, I grew up in Milford and East Adam. And here we are. Uh, I mean, Poland, they just sound cool. but <laughs> <laughs> I know, but you have that to work with. I, I So... I mean, the, the long short of my story is that um, what really drew me to the spiritual path was I'm in recovery. So it was years of active addiction that brought me to numerous rock bottoms. Um, the most recent of which, which was about three years ago, uh, you know, I woke up in a jail cell from a blackout drunk and... Uh, all the times prior to that, I that I'd been either waking up in a jail cell or in a detox or a rehab, there was always a bit of a like a flame of hope. I could still feel burning down there, but this time it had felt like the flame was completely extinguished. I uh, I was ready to die. I'd been ready to die at other times in my life, but this was a real yearning for death, like a welcoming, like please take me because I'm I'm over this. Um, but that was really the catalyst that I think kind of shattered my, my heart armor. And I went to treatment in New Jersey for a few months. And it was actually while I was in treatment that uh, one of the clinicians gave me a book called Finding Freedom by a death row inmate in San Quentin prison named Jarvis J. Masters. And I had heard of Jarvis because there's a, an amazing Buddhist nun, Pema Chodron, who writes and talks often about Jarvis in her books and, and lectures. And she actually wrote the foreword for his second book. But I had not read his material. And so the the clinician brought it in and I started to read it. And it just, uh, it, it ignited that flame that I thought had gone out in me. You know, here's this man living on death row in San Quentin, the darkest, most desolate place you can imagine. Um, and amongst that, he finds not only, you know, the will to continue living, but to take his bodhisattva vows. And... To practice nonviolence, you know, in, in death row. It's uh, so really looking at that and comparing it to where my life was at, you know, it, it was just a real wake up call for me. You know, wow, you really don't have it so bad at all. You're in, in comparison, a relatively cushy rehab, which wasn't cushy, but, you know, compared to death row, it really was. So, you know, I, well, I, I ended up coming home and uh, and I'd been doing a website prior to the relapse called Indie Spirituals where I interview spiritual teachers and musicians and actors and all these things. I wanted to make a, a place where people can come together and explore different ideas. Um, and one thing led to another. I started writing for other websites and then I just started meeting the right people and uh, a book came out. <laughs> I mean, there's more to it, but in the uh, to respect time. Uh, I ended up writing this book, which has been a, um, a very humbling experience for me because I write very raw and vulnerably, uh, and I go into much more detail than I just did about my experience. Um, and to receive emails and messages from people literally all over the world that have read this book uh, and found hope through that book, like I found in, in Jarvis's book, um, easily the most meaningful thing um, that's ever happened to me in my life, that I can be of service in that way to people. I love being in service however I can, talking here, talking in rehabs or detoxes or festivals, whatever it may be. But um, 
you know, to get those letters from people struggling and not just with addiction, but I mean, we're all human beings. I, uh, I had interviewed uh, a mutual friend, father, Thomas Keating, who is a brilliant Trappist monk. And I, while I was interviewing him, I said, you know, I'm in recovery from addiction and he's in his eighties, I think, or so. Yeah. Like almost 90. 90. So he laughs this like 80 year old nice man laughing. He's like, well, I'm in recovery too, but I'm in recovery from the human condition. <laughs> oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's like the Buddha teaches in his first noble truth that if you've taken a human birth, it's inevitable that we will experience suffering. But as the Buddha also goes on to teach that the amount of suffering that we experience is much more in our control than you know, many of us actually realize. So, um, so yeah, so I wrote the book and, uh, and it's, it's, um, been a very surreal humbling experience, as I said, and, uh, and here we are today at the lovely sanctuary in East Adam, full circle. And it's a beautiful book. I mean, and uh, written from a very vulnerable and deep place. If you guys haven't read it, please do. Well, thanks. And let's come right back to you then, Adam. Um, Occupy Spirituality is a very important book. Uh, you know, first of all, it, what, what's beautiful about this book is Matthew Fox already mentioned. He's in his 70s. Yeah. So you have Matthew in his 70s, and then you have Adam who's in his 30s. And you have these two different generations that are coming together and talking about very relevant, not just spiritual aspects, but social aspects and sacred activism, as you guys call it. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd love for you if you could share a little about that. So, you know... I've been working with young people for the last 15 years. I originally started working with young people in India. I went to India to, to spend time at a monastery, at a Hindu Christian monastery. And on my way there, I met a homeless girl who's, I think, 13, just skin and bones. And, you know, it just really shattered me into pieces. And, um, and I knew this old friend of mine who was this European guy from Amsterdam who and was a heroin addict for 17 years and was this kind of a um, an artist guru in Amsterdam in 70s. You know, he, 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 he would dress in this kind of wild costumes, you know, make clothes out of like small mirrors, you know. And uh, and then eventually, you know, through, through his art and addiction, I mean, he realized, well, most of my, most of my friends died. Um, and so... Um, he moved into a basement and, 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 and someone, because his gallery burned and, and, and someone would visit him once, uh, once a week and, and, and together they would re read the Bible. And then he had an experience of Jesus, you know, and after that he went to India. So a dying person on the street, a person who was addicted to heroin, and he just started picking up those people from the streets of Delhi and it evolved into this kind of a semi-monastic community in the slums. So when I met that girl, you know, I, I, I got in touch with my friend because I felt like, you know, maybe this is the monastery I'm supposed to be in. And it was one of those places where, you know, like 60% of, of the people there were, were dying of AIDS. I mean, they would find people with maggots in their bodies. I mean, my first experience on the first day was, you know, they... You know, we, we found someone, you know, that they like washed him, took off, you know, like he had something like his foot was wrapped into something. And like when they took off the material, part of his foot just fell off, you know, mm -hmm. like onto the floor. And they said, wow, even the maggots are already dead. So it was this kind of a crazy place. But at the same time, probably the most holy place I've ever experienced, you know. And so kind of things just 
you know, through that experience, eventually I got sick in India, but I came to the United States and started working on the streets of different cities and eventually co-founded Reciprocity Foundation, which is an organization for homeless kids in New York City, kids who are doing sex work, you know, who are on the streets. And Matthew and I have been talking about things for the last 10 years or so, and we've been engaging in these kinds of dialogues about what kind of spirituality is emerging in a new generation. And at the at some point, we decided that we will do a book together. And it was at the time when Occupy Wall Street happened, you know. We started working on a book in, in late August, and, and Occupy happened, uh, you know, September, so just a couple of weeks after that. And I had this experience, you know, at Occupy. There was this one kid from Reciprocity, from our foundation, a kid that I've known for many years. He's been a client of every, like, single... Uh, homeless youth organization in New York City. Uh, he, he, he had an addiction problem and was just, I mean, one of those kids who was in a really bad place and nothing worked. And then one day after Occupy started, he showed up with a newspaper and he said, look, and there was this, this front page story um, and it had a picture of him getting arrested, uh, you know, and he was very proud of it. Uh, that, that he got arrested. And, you know, I said, you know, so, so, I mean, you had a nice situation going at a shelter. Why didn't you stay there? Why did you, I mean, you went back to the street to live in Zakoti Park? And he said, you know, this is why. He's in a shelter. I leave my bag. I go to the bathroom. I come back. My bag is gone. At Occupy, I leave my bag. I get arrested. I spent 24 hours in jail. When I'm ready to be released, there are people that are waiting for me with food and water, making sure that I'm okay. People who want to celebrate my courage. And then he said, and then I go back to the camp and my bag is still there. And so this is the kind of a world that I want to work for, you know. And so we realized that all the ideas that we've been talking about with Matthew in terms of these kinds of new qualities that were emerging in, in, in young people, uh, new ways of, 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 of relating to what really matters, building their lives around what they consider to be their sacred calling, you know. We realized that all of those things were also happening uh, in Zakori Park. And so we kind of connected those two impulses and decided to, to write a book about this new spirituality. And one of the key components of of that new spirituality is that, you know, in the past, contemplation or meditation and activism were always kind of on two opposite spectrums, you know? I mean, everyone thought that the ideal of a spiritual life is to sit on the mountain and let go of this world. What we realized is that for young people, spirituality that doesn't involve action was no spirituality at all. They wanted to act in the world, but not just act in the world in any kind of Way They wanted to act in the, in, in the world in a way that reflects their deepest calling, their deepest values. They wanted mm. to create a world like that kid at Occupy, you know, that homeless kid where everyone would be responsible for each other. And so that's kind of how this book, um, you know, came about. Now, I kind of want to throw it back at you. So, so, so Chris, I mean... You mentioned this, this word service. 
that you love to serve. Uh, and that it, it's been an amazing experience because people have been uh, writing you letters and, and, and their lives have been changed as a result of reading your book. Um, I wanted to ask you a very personal question. Oh. What's in your spiritual practice, in your life, what's the connection between, you know, meditation and service? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, there is no difference for me. Um, you know, a lot of people think we sit on our cushions and we meditate. And, you know, it's a formal sitting. Um, but I think for those of us who've been sitting for a while, uh, you realize your your entire day can become your meditation. You know, you, if you're washing your hands and you're aware of the soap and the smell, you know, you're med- it's, it's a meditation. You're being there in the moment. Um so service is just an extension of that for me, uh, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, it's just, you know, it's it's a heart calling that uh, that I, I believe you felt as well. We were talking a lot about the bhakti path of devotion and, and heart. Um, and so, you know, service just is something that it's it's all I feel compelled to do in my life, you know, is to be there in, in whatever capacity. It doesn't always look the same. Um and I think a big service is that, you know, the work you're doing with Matthew and, you know, I've been doing work with Ken Wilber now and we're, we're, it's really actually very exciting for me to see these two generations coming together. Um, of course, you have both people in the younger and older generations that are very rigid in what they believe is spirituality and it needs to look like and it's right and it's wrong. But then you also have people in both camps that are very open and fluid about spirituality. And, you know, it's been extremely just inspiring and moving for me, you know, to see the work Adam does with Matthew or to be doing work that I'm doing with Ken Wilber or when we both wrote our books to have people like Ram Das and Jack Kornfield and Tara Brock and, and Baba Surya Das and all these elder spiritual teachers that cross the board in traditions from Hinduism to Buddhism to Christianity, you know, recognize the work and not only you know, write nice endorsements, but to support it on their websites and their social media pages because they're recognizing, you know, what they were doing when they were younger in the 60s and the 70s. It's just still emerging now. Um, and, and that's really, that's an important service is continuing that conversation, you know, because a lot of younger people in their spirituality just want to do what they want to do. And that's fine. I mean, if that's what you feel compelled to do right now, do what you're going to do and that's okay. But Adam and I have talked about this, and I think having that wisdom from the people that have walked the path before us, our elders, you know, the people that have gone there and, you know, have, have experienced the light and now we're shining the light for our paths, um, to take that wisdom from them and learn and then come together in a way where we can present that, you know, to people of all ages. The funny thing for me is my publisher had our, tem- our target demographic of my book, which was like 20 to 40, roughly. I can't tell you how many people have written to me in their 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, that it just clicked for them. And, and that's amazing to me. That, that's so touching. You know, it's just to know that the words, the spirit is there. You know, it, the words are the semantics. It's, it's the, the heart and the spirit and that connection, which I know comes through in your book as well. So I'd love to actually, Adam, if you could talk a little bit about your experience of working maybe with Matthew or just elders in general and, and, bringing spirituality out in a way that it can, that it's accessible, 
not just for the younger generation, which I know a lot of our work is geared towards, but in a way that also honors the work of those who have come before us and that um, are a different generation. Well, I think, you know, Richard Rohr has this wonderful, wonderful phrase uh, where he says that we all need someone who can give us a dangerous permission to trust what's unfolding in our hearts um, and then encourage us to build courage together to say yes to it and to live as an expression of that in the world. And for me, I feel that that's what it's been. You know, people like Andrew Harvey or, or Matthew Fox. What's wonderful about, you know, collaborating with them is that I feel that they were able to show up in my life without having any agendas and to really just be there as this kind of a listening and supportive presence. And whenever there was something that I struggled with, they would just relate their own experiences or the experiences that they had in their spiritual formation to whatever I was going through. And that would name my experience, but would also connect it to tools that, you know, all of our wonderful traditions have to essentially work through that experience and to essentially be empowered to move closer to really being able to become the person that I was born to be, so to speak, you know. And so to me, that's really wonderful. I feel that it's very difficult to do that without having those elders in our lives. Now, as you mentioned, Chris, there are quite a few elders who are kind of looking for young people to work with, but they're not finding them. And I've had quite a few, you know, well-known spiritual teachers saying, well, you know, no one comes to my workshop. Well, okay. And then when we were working on a book, you know, I think we interviewed quite a few young leaders from like 19 or 18 to like mid-30s. And more than 90% of them said that they're longing for mentors and they're not finding them. And then they said, when we do find them, they talk too much. <laughs> and so, and I think especially those two guys, you know, Andrew Harvey and Matthew Fox, they really modeled to me this kind of equality of what it means to show up as this kind of listening and supportive presence. Um, so a person of a younger generation instead of, you know, just kind of feeling like there's a lot of pressure to subscribe to their framework and to even follow in their footsteps. Instead, it's almost like there, there's this beautiful Quaker phrase, you know, uh, that says that to listen someone into life or into being is like the most vulnerable service that you can perform in life. And it's kind of like that, you know, their presence just kind of allowed me to touch something very sacred about, you know, that was trying to emerge and gave me courage to say, you know, fuck it, I'm going to do it. I'm really going to do it. Um, and, and, and that was life-changing. And I think that this new spirituality in terms of presenting it to people, 
I think it has to be presented in this kind of a dialogical way. And again, you know, I think that many, many people actually complained about Occupy because it was dialogical. And I think that there are some problems there for sure. But, you know, when you talk to some of those kids who participated in that initial movement, that's what they experienced. They, they experienced, you know, what it means to be part of a small community like this where we can put our egos aside and relate to each other in such way that wisdom can come through everyone participating. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like, you know, Martin Buber has this phrase that, you know, God becomes the between between friends. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like that. You know, if we can relate to each other in that way, God just kind of emerges in the midst of whatever we're doing and it begins to guide the process. And I think that spirituality needs to be presented that way where we're, we're, we're not just talking about it, but we're creating experiences where where God becomes the between between friends or if you have difficulties with the word God, you know, replace it with something that you're talking about. Yeah. I, uh, I think that's a huge, huge thing to touch on. You know, a lot of people, as I said earlier, they're fixed, very fixed in their way and, and they have it all figured out. And if your spirituality doesn't look like theirs or sound like theirs, then it's inauthentic or it's a lesser than. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. You know, I... I can only speak to my experience of spirituality and just life in general. I have no idea what's going on for any of you guys in your experience. So who am I to ever say that what you experience as truth is wrong? And who is any of you to say that what I experience as true is wrong? Ken Wilber has a saying, I don't remember verbatim, but he says something like, no one's smart enough to be wrong all of the time. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, that's how it is. So. You know, you look at the, I think, the core of the mystic traditions, Zen, mystic Christianity, you know, you look at these, and I, I believe at the core, they're all a very heart-centered teaching. You know, it comes back to one, to the to the heart. So there's always commonalities across the board. It doesn't mean that you can't have one faith and, and you know, honor that and ride that train all the way home. It just means that, you know, you have your open heart to others and your mind is open to others and you honor the fact that their path might look different than you in their path it doesn't mean it's any less relevant you know it can be just as powerful as your own path you know and i think that that's it that's a really inspiring thing too to see these elder teachers like matthew fox and ram Dass and, and you know just the great the great people that are passing the torch right now you know that's what they've been teaching right along too um for the most part not all all teachers obviously but um I think if you read any of the, the, the teachers like Meister Eckhart or Thich Nhat Hanh, um, Ramana Maharshi, Krishnamurti, you know, it always comes back to, they're all, to me, saying a very, very similar thing, just wording it in their own experience. You know? so. yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, I mean, I look at some of my mentors, the reason why they're able to kind of work with the younger generation is because they had mentors. Right, and we're able to show up for them in that kind of a way, and so I think that we're all, in a way, responsible um, to to become those kinds of mentors to to to, to young people. And the truth is that it's never a one-way street. Right, Uh, you know, like when I work with homeless kids, it's not really clear who's helping him because it literally feels like you know God does the work. Right. Yeah. And and I know. I mean, I benefit yeah. just as much, if not more. Uh, 
and you know, I too need that healing that they do. Right. Uh, you know, my old mentor, the, the, the guy from India, used to say, you know, we're just as broken as the people that we serve. It's just that, you know, for some reason we're able to show up in that way. Yeah. But they are the people who bring us gifts mm. because through them we're discovering the truth of our humanity, of our, of our purpose, and etc. I'm quite sure when I go in and I speak at places like detox and rehabs, um, I'm getting much more out of it, I think, than anyone there. And that's not why I do it. But I really, like you just said, you know, uh, to, to be there and, and, you know, to open my heart in that way. And just it, it affords me an opportunity to go deeper into that experience. Um, and, and hopefully I, I will touch and, and give hope to someone there. But, um, you know, and, and I think you touched on something as well. Uh, you know, we talk about karma yoga and being of service. But, you know, doing it in a way where it's, I'm not helping you. Like, look at me, I'm such a good guy and I'm, I'm volunteering time and I'm giving you a piece of bread or whatever. It's, you know, selfless, sincere selfless. Yeah, it's easy to kind of, I mean, we have to be very careful because it's easy to kind of use that for the glorification of right. our own ego. And, uh, and I think that that's why, in a way, it's a safer way just kind of assume that you know grace comes and does the work and we need just as much help as as you know the people that we're that we're serving uh, in terms of how are we doing time we got about 15 minutes 15. and then we'll do a 15 minutes so you know you towards the end of your book you have some stuff about spiritual practices um and we also have a chapter on spiritual practice. And in many ways, there's no spirituality without spiritual practice. Mm. Uh, what are the two of your favorite spiritual practices that are like, you know, lifelines for you? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, the basic is just meditation, of course. You know, I, I meditate diligently twice a day. I have to do that for me. Um, I need a healthy routine in my life. I mean, sure, there are, there are some days where I'll miss one, but... Um, you know, if it's, if it's within my control, absolutely meditation. And uh, there are so many different kinds of meditation, as many of us know. The trick is finding the one or ones that work for you. Because um, I know a lot of people that have tried, you know, a certain kind, maybe Zen meditation, where they will just stare, you know, eyes a third of the way open and uh, or closed, and they'll stare at the wall, and they can't do it. And I get that, you know. Uh, so there are some kinds of meditation that resonate for some people, some kind that don't, you know, so that's a big thing. And I think meditation is key for unlocking, you know, the strict identification we have with our bodies and our material selves, which are, of course, part of the equation, but it's a very small part. So meditation is one. And the other one is uh, something I, I touch on in the book. I actually, I'm sharing it more in my second book than I did in the first, but um, it's a technique that, I've heard Thich Nhat Hanh talk about in the past. Um, I kind of t I took it a little bit further with the way I do it, but a very a, a short version of it. It's any it's really for dealing with our tough, difficult times. I know when a lot of people come to spirituality, they just want the love and light aspect. They want to feel good, and they believe that you know meditation is going to make us all blissed out. And sometimes it certainly does, but it hasn't been my experience. Okay, well, yeah. <laughs> Being blissed out. You are in good company then. Um, but so there's this practice, you know, where Anytime I'm aware of negative thoughts or emotions coming up, if I'm able to, I will take a moment and close my eyes and I will sit with this experience. And because our natural tendency as human beings is to avoid pain, you know, that's what we want to do. But as we're doing that, we're keeping ourselves locked in this perpetual cycle just of more of the same, 
you know, more pain, more disease. So it's not until we actually start facing it. Um, you know, so what I do is I will actually, I'll close my eyes and I will first tune in to allow my voice to say whatever it has to say. You know, I will, it can be as mean to me as it wants or if it's judging, you know, projecting, it can do that. I just allow it to do what it'll do. And then I also, after that, with our thoughts come subsequent emotions. So I tune into my body. Uh, well, first, I'm sorry, I tune into what am I feeling? Sad, angry, anxious. You know, I, I get very much in touch with that and I allow it to be. I, I don't try to hide from it. The third part of that is then I look to my physical sensations. You know, is there, is there pain in my head? Is there tightening in my chest? You know, anywhere, any, any dis-ease I'm feeling in my body is applicable. So that's the first part of it. And then the second half is once I'm very in a very intimate place with, you know, the emotions, the thoughts, and the physical sensations, I, you know, with my eyes closed, I mentally, but people can do it verbally, is I will say, well, first I actually imagine wrapping it up in a warm blanket the same way a mother would her newborn baby. And I, and I imagine myself holding it. And if this hasn't been the case for me, but pe some people I've talked to, it's been a little too personal to do that. So I tell them, well, just put it in a baby carriage, you know, so it's not right there and you can rock it back and forth. And once I'm doing that, you know, I will mentally say to it that, you know, I, I recognize that you're there and I honor that you are there. And my heart is completely and unconditionally open to you right now. And I will be here with you for as long as you need me to be. And if there's anything you need me to know, please let me know. Um, and the amazing thing is that usually within a minute, it all subsides. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not why I'm doing it. I'm, I'm doing it literally. We come to it with a very open heart. So we're completely turning around, you know, our natural tendency to avoid this pain. And I have experienced so much healing through that one practice. So when you said lifeline practice, like mm -hmm. that's a lifeline practice because part of what kept me sick in my addiction was that I was not willing to look at these difficult times. You know, we all have this stuff stored up in us. And a lot of it comes up in meditation and that's fine. But then a lot of us also have the tendency to not, you know, to push it over here. And, and let's go back to the mantra and happy thoughts, happy thoughts. And that has its place too. But um, so those are two for me. I would love to hear a couple of yours too. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, sure. So for me, the two practices, the first one is actually uh, a practice that comes from a Jewish tradition. Uh, I learned it from, from another mentor of mine, uh, Rabbi Yehuda Fine. He was also kicked out of his congregation. <laughs> I guess I'm attracted to, <laughs> to people who, you know, uh, he was, uh, you know, he's a very holy man who now mainly lives in seclusion. But um, in the 60s, when people were looking for gurus, he kind of went around and, were, and, and wasn't impressed with any. And he said, well, I'm Jewish, let me go to the Holy Land and find some Hasidic rabbis who survived the Holocaust. Um, and he found uh, a couple of really holy people and studied with them for a decade. And then he spent 30 years working on the streets of New York City, Los Angeles, and London, rescuing homeless kids from the streets. But he taught me this very simple Hasidic practice, you know, which is essentially, um, you imagine that God is your best friend. Uh, and you open every corner of your life, of your heart, to God, to your best friend. You name everything that, that's going on and you just talk to God. And sometimes you cry, sometimes you scream until there's, there are no words to be said. Uh, and I found that practice to be extremely, extremely life-changing. You know, I mean, now I teach it to some of the homeless kids. It's amazing what happens, you know, because it's just like, and you know, some people believe that God can't enter 
certain corners of your heart, of your life, unless you open them and invite that in. And so it's kind of like that, you know. Um, and this practice, I mean, comes from Reb Nachman, who is a Hasidic um, holy man. Uh, and and to me, that's that's a practice that that is just life changing. And then I often follow that with a second practice, which is a practice of centering prayer, mm. which is a practice uh, that comes from Father Thomas Kidding's lineage. And you know. I originally learned centering prayer when I was 19, when I went to a Hindu monastery. And when I learned about centering prayer, I dismissed it because I thought, I'm here to learn some esoteric stuff. You know, this is way too simple. I bet it doesn't work. And then like, you know, 15 years later, uh, I went back to that practice and it changed my life. And it's a very simple practice. You know, most practices, most silent practices are concentrative practices where you try to focus on the mantra or or on on something centering prayer is not about concentration it's about sitting in a state of receptivity and listening it's about consenting to god's love and action in you uh, you know and and it's amazing so i start with a conversational prayer that comes from reb nachman and then it literally feels like the presence just kind of descends, you know. I mean, the friend becomes very real. And then once there are no more words to be said, I just kind of move into a centering prayer where I sit uh, in the state of just kind of openness to this presence and then say yes to it so it can do, you know, Father Thomas calls it the divine therapist who can do the work of healing, you know, on us. And so those two practices for me, really changed my life. Um, so those are my two favorites. Nice. So we got a few minutes. Was there anything you wanted to say? I think maybe it would be cool to just open have up. a dialogue. Cool. So, all right. So we, that gives us five additional minutes. Um, and if anyone, we would love any questions or if you don't have questions, I, whenever I do a Q and A, I always encourage people that if anything came up for you that you would like to share just in general that you think would be a benefit to the group, please feel free. You know, Adam and I are seeing if you're talking, but it, you know, doesn't mean everyone in the circle is not a teacher. So yeah. mm -hmm. um, I would love to hear from anyone that has either a question or a comment. Um, I have a question um, as to you guys were touching about on a, on a lot of, you know, kind of differentiating the elderly um, spirituality and this kind of youth, um, attitude towards spirituality or this new spirituality that's coming from the youth and my question was just you know for you guys as what what do you guys think is the biggest divide or the thing that are keeping you know both these sort of spiritualities although they are in the same vein you know what's keeping them separate and what's keeping them um not not matching up or non-linear exactly so, you know, I wanted to share quickly a personal experience. I was recently, I mean, a few months ago, in a gathering of mainly monks, elder mm -hmm. monks. And me and a couple of other people, kind of our age, uh, started talking about this kind of new impulse that, that young people are feeling. Mm -hmm. And all the monks got freaked out. I mean, they were just like freaked out. You know, they were just like, this is, you know, I mean, they didn't say this is bullshit, but they kind of, I thought, taught it, I think. Um, and so, I, and it was a, like a seven day long gathering. And after that, 
first day, I mean, first session, I thought it felt like I just got beat up. You know, it's just like, wow, seven more days. This is going to be intense. (laughs) But it's interesting because, you know, by the third day, we were all becoming friends. And then by the sixth day, we were like taking notes and, and inviting each other to come to our centers and to speak and to like... And so I think that the main reason why, you know, the divide happens is that those two groups never meet, really, in a way where each of them can, you know, kind of take off their mask and just be who they are. Um, In a situation where, you know, we can really have this experience of shared hearts, you know. And so as a result, there are a lot of, Uh, assumptions and you know the language is different and and again you know an interesting experience from 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 occupy so there's a meditation group of 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 young people and then right next to them there's a occupy faith which is religious leaders you know basically elders they they've never had a conversation you know and i think that that just shows and what's beautiful about this group is that it's an intergenerational group. And I think we have to start from a conversation because it's only when we get to know each other, when we begin to trust each other, that we can actually begin to trust, you know, what's trying to be born in our hearts. So that's. I think Adam nailed the most important aspect of that answer. It's something that came up for me. Uh, also, is obviously spirituality is a very personal thing, right. you know, for those that practice it. And we have these experiences through meditation or whatever other practices we do that become quite literally the realist experiences of our lives. Mm-hmm. And when we have that experience, I think people go one of two ways with it. It's either, you know, they have these Satori moments or just moments of, of light and, and, you know, whether it's nature, mysticism or whatever it may be, they have this experience and, you know, it's a result of whatever path they might be on in their practice. And it's like, holy shit, this is it. I get it now. And so with that realization, either they go one way with it, which is I had this realization because of this path. I know that this is the way. The other side of that coin is people will have this experience and it will be such an opening experience that they will realize, holy shit, the path is the way, not this path, Mm -hmm. the path. It's all the way. You know, you you go beyond um, what's the gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhiswaha which is a beautiful mantra of gone, gone, gone beyond, gone beyond the great beyond. You know, when you go beyond that great beyond, you know, where it's the judgments are gone, the opinions are gone. It's literally just this experience of Dharmakaya or Brahman or Godhead or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's just like, ah, you know, here it is. So that's what came up for me. And, and you know, the results, I mean, we're the, I think we're like experiencing an evolutionary shift. You know, in the past, most people came to their sense of spirituality through one specific path. We're moving beyond religion, especially in this country, you know. And so the first, you know, elders don't necessarily understand. And so they say, well, why dig many different holes? You know, you will never go deep. And, you know, uh, one of my friends who's an Episcopalian priest, then a Sufi dervish, uh, said, no, 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 we're not digging different holes. We're just using different tools to dig one hole. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so that's also, I think, different, you know? Yeah, I guess you. Thanks. Um, 
I'm not exactly sure, but basically my question was how does something that I face a lot with um, talking to people, particularly in my age range, I'm 20, um, is how to engage people in the conversation, the dialogue on spirituality who are already completely jaded against the church and just completely think that anything related to God or higher power is just like not what they want. Like, how do you engage in those kinds you of don't. things? No? You don't. Right? You're not. It's like, I mean, you have your truth. They have their truth. Mm-hmm. You know, like, if they're interested in it, at some point, they'll come around. And if not, that's cool. That's They're living their life. The tricky thing I know is once you have, you're on that spiritual path and you start to gain that experience of liberation and freedom, you know, you start to realize that you're more than these material bodies. You know, there's such an amazing sense of just profound liberation. And, you know, I know a lot of us, when we're experiencing reverse time, we want to shout it from the rooftops. We want to drag all our friends into meditation groups or the yoga studios. And I understand because we want them to experience that too. We love them and we care about them, but you can't force it. It's like people in recovery, you know, they could be killing themselves and you want nothing more for them than to get that help, but you can't force it on them. You know I mean? You can, I mean, I guess you can, you know, have that intervention and get them into a treatment center. But once they leave that treatment center, you know, they're, it's still on them. That person needs to want to do it. So I understand what you're saying, but you know, if it's, you're doing your Dharma, they're doing their Dharma and, and it just might not intersect at this time. Who knows what tomorrow brings? That's my thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I agree. You know, we deal with that at our center for homeless youth. Uh, and, uh, I decided a long time ago that I'm not going to preach spirituality to the kids who come there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also decided that I'm going to ask them deep questions. So, like, one of my favorite questions when they come is, what breaks your heart? You know, what makes you truly alive? Um, and it's interesting because then, you know, we can get into, they can start talking about, you know, like Chris just told me about this experience that he had, you know, running and right. listening to some pretty hardcore music, yeah, right? Heavy, yeah. And so it's like, and, you know, all of us have had those experiences. And so it's interesting because, you know, like when you ask those questions, people actually start talking about those experiences. And then sometimes they say, you know, by the way, that thing, you know, that gap that they're talking about, that's what they're talking about, the experience you're just telling me about. And that sometimes shifts the conversation from religion to what is meaning you know, in our lives. And I think that the truth is that most people are searching for meaning, whether they know it or not. I mean, even like when we talk about addiction, we're searching for something that feels like we're complete right yeah absolutely i mean it's it's it was the hole you know in the heart that i was trying to fill with for me it was chemical substances for some others it might be sex or food or shopping but yeah we're just we're filling it and there's a, something deeper that, it, that we're looking for and it's just not doing it i think we have time for like one more question before we wrap this up well two but we can do one more if there is one more can I ask a question for the elders? Uh, please. <laughs> so, um, thank you so much for the conversation. It's amazing. And um, I'm, I, one thing you touched on that I just want to get a little clarity is when you were saying the younger folks, they pretty much don't want to listen to the talking heads. Yeah. They want a different experience. Could you just tell me a little bit uh, more about like what does the other experience look like? Well, the other experience would be like, you know, 
uh, invite some young people to your home, you know, serve like tea or coffee or whatever. Mm -hmm. And let's like together come up with the questions that we're going to reflect on. Like, it's more and, interactive. Yeah, like, it's more interactive yeah. and no one is assuming, you know, a role of a, of a leader, so to speak. And there are specific tools also. I think Parker Palmer, you know, developed some wonderful tools um, for how to gather in groups, you know, but also Piercy Ainayatkan, who's a Sufi leader uh, in his 40s, he's fairly young, and they developed a methodology they call Heartful Conversation. Um, sometimes it's good to use those tools, but it's essentially, I mean, the main thing is that we're in a dialogue, you know, let's give each other a benefit of the doubt and assume that we all know something. I don't think it's just today's generation. I think even the younger generation a generation ago, when you're younger, you want to be heard. You know, it's part of who you are. So to have that, like you said, dialogue, when I do longer workshops myself, I do multiple Q&As or, you know, I ask questions because I want to engage people, again, because I want to hear what they have to say because I always learn from what people have to say. But also, let's open it up and let's come together and make this a collective experience, you know, instead of just... I'm going to talk to you for one, two, three hours, and you're going to listen yeah. because I have it all figured out, or you know, I'm yeah, gonna... and I'm going to make you feel like shit, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. and that's yep. traditionally, I mean, our religious systems have gone. There. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, you had that experience, forget about it, just do this. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I find that even though in in education outside of religious education, um, oh yeah, I mean, it's pretty screwed up, mm -hmm. and so much could happen in that classroom setting with. You know, I was once at an amazing retreat about this heartful conversation that here Zia and I had kind of, now we're running out of time. But they did something radical. It was a retreat that lasted five for five days. And what they did, they, they, there were, I think, two or three sessions. So the first day was planned. And then, and, and I mean, we didn't know it. Then they divided people into small groups and said, Every group is responsible for one session for the rest of, you know, four days. Uh, so everyone became, and it was one of the most amazing retreats I've ever been to. It's, uh, you know. So we're going to wrap up. But if anyone had a question they didn't get to ask or wanted to mention or say something to Adam or I, we'll be, we'll be around for a little while. Um, Adam only has two copies of his book left, which is wonderful. I have more, so if you are only going to buy one book, I recommend buy Adam. Yeah, buy Chris's book. <laughs> no, buy Adam. But anyways, um, and I have you know free DVDs. Oh yeah, yeah. Free DVDs. Uh, Tell them really quick about it's, that. It's a film called Invisible Diaries of New York's Homeless Youth. It's a uh, film made for TV for Channel Eleven. I don't know if Channel yeah. Eleven happens yeah. here. PIX, um, I, maybe, I don't know. But, uh, you know, they did a film about themselves and it was nominated for an Emmy and it's the kids uh, from our foundation wow. and it's their stories. And you can find out about Adam at adambucko.com, B-U-C-K-O, and also reciprocityfoundation.org. Um, what he's doing in New York is tremendous work with the homeless. Um, so thank you so much, Adam, thank for coming you. out thank today. Thank you. And thank you, everyone. Thank you, guys. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P.com slash be here now.